listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. so glad that you're here today and we didn't expect a big crowd um, usually the week before and the week after fall break um, it's just a, 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 a skeleton crew and we've got just about every seat filled up we praise the Lord for that it's also family worship Sunday we don't do this every Sunday um, just the last Sunday of the month and so um, I will try to be brief, as I always do, and usually I'm not successful at it. Um, but, but, but anyway, um, if you will, we're in Daniel chapter 2 this morning, and uh, it looks like people are warm. I'm going to try to adjust the air conditioning units here while y'all are turning to Daniel 2. And uh, nope, that's already down to 70. Okay, <laughs> 70 degrees in here, so. Um, all right, I'm going to preach. Um, let me just uh, mention a couple of things. Next Sunday night is our missions conference. Please cancel everything on your schedule and come to our missions conference. It's going to be a great time when both of our congregations, our congregation in McDonough and uh, the Locust Grove congregation come together. It will be in McDonough as it was last year. And so there's an email that comes out about that if you have questions. Uh, see Mike Bailey. He is our pastor that's in charge of missions um, we'll have tables and booths set up and then a great time of worship together and Mark Lewis will be speaking to us. Also, um, Georgette's funeral was yesterday. Thank you so much, family of God, for being so kind and responding, um, so gracious, so loving. Um, and just let me remind you, body of Christ, and this is something that I've always said, when, when death calls, life stops. And just as when life comes into the world and we recognize the beauty of life as created in the image of God, we also stop when people pass and leave us because their life was so valuable and meaningful to us. And Georgette Wingate was so valuable and meaningful to us. And so thank you for those that came um, yesterday. And then uh, one little logistical matter. Um, we overcharged you for those that bought t-shirts last week by $5. The t-shirts were supposed to be $15. I want to correct that. Number one. Number two, if you think $15 is too much, whoever's running the bookstore, please hear me. Just go up there and get a free t-shirt and say, charge it to Mark and I'll pay for it. I hadn't talked to my wife about that. I haven't seen her in here. There she is. Oh, she's, she's good. She'll, she'll make good on that for me. Um, but just say, charge it to Mark's account. Now, don't walk out with 10 T-shirts. But um, if you love the T-shirts, but you think we're price gouging you, I'll cover that for you. So don't leave today without a T-shirt if you want one. And don't leave mad if you think the price is too high. You can't beat the price on that. So we're in um, Daniel chapter 2. We've taken two weeks to look at. Uh, we did one week of introduction. Last, the week after that, we looked at verses 1 to 7. And last week, we looked at verses um, 8 all the way to verse 21. And now we're coming to a different section as Daniel's influence grows there in 
Babylon, the, the Hebrew people have been taken into captivity. They are in exile. They're 900 miles from home. They're in a foreign country. They're being amalgamated. They're, they're, they're being manipulated by the Babylonians so that they will lose their original identity and become a part of a new society so that they will, they will cease to exist. That is Satan's objective. And the spotlight has been dropped down on uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and they're going to be carrying the story through the first half of the book of Daniel. And so this morning, we're going to look at this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has that is of historical significance. We're not going to look at it in detail, but we're going to look at what leads up to that in the first 16 verses in the few minutes that we have here this morning. So Daniel chapter 2, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. And some of us can relate to that. Verse 2, then the king commanded the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. And then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. He says that twice. The word from me is firm. I'm not changing my mind. Don't try to influence me. And he gives them something that's virtually impossible. He said, if you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell the servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. Maybe the king wasn't clear, although he said, this is firm. Verse 8, the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I, I, I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Anybody can say a dream means anything. But if you're going to give me an interpretation, I'm going to know your interpretation's accurate, that you've been given that interpretation if you have been given the dream as well. So he wants to be certain, and he probably has a foggy memory about the details of the dream. He just woke up having a bad dream, knowing that he was all stirred up about it. And so he's, he's putting them to the test. Verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. They're saying, Hold on, king. The problem is not with us, your spiritual advisors. The problem is with your request. Our performance is not in question. It's your request that is unreasonable. Verse 11, notice this prophetic word, this word of truth. The thing that the king asked is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Verse 12, because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, 
the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Let me break this down for you in four parts of this morning. Number one, Nebuchadnezzar has a spiritual problem. Nebuchadnezzar has a spiritual problem. Just to give you a little bit of context about who Nebuchadnezzar is, he's named after the Babylonian god Nabu, and that means god of wisdom. Back then, a name brought along with it expectation. So here is a man that is expected to be unusually wise. Nebuchadnezzar was a great warrior. He was a great victor. He was a great conqueror. He was a great military leader. And when his dad passed off the scene, he became the king. When we read this text this morning, Daniel, or Nebuchadnezzar is 30 years old, and he's, he's the ruler of the world's most powerful empire. And quite frankly, Nebuchadnezzar, up to the point of this dream, felt like he was in complete control. But he has a dream and dreams mean different things. If you are going to look at uh, Sigmund Freud and psychoanalysis, he would say that dreams are just this outworking of some inner struggles that you may be having. If you look to the Bible, you're going to see that people had dreams, and it was many times a message from God. If you look to what maybe you dreamed last night, you're probably going to conclude that you drank milk too late or ate too much pizza for supper. My wife said that she had a dream last night. She said there was a bad part of the dream and there was a good part of the dream. She said the good part of the dream was that she dreamed that Barbara Thomas was going to be playing drums today. Now, that dream didn't come true, and uh, I think we may all be thankful for that, or maybe there's some hidden talent that we're not aware of that Barbara Thomas has. In the ancient world, dreams were prophetic. They were indicative of future events. They were revelations from God about the future. And whatever the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, it was clear enough to perplex him and ambiguous enough that he would ultimately need Daniel to sort it out for him. And this was all the plan and strategy of God. And so he had this dream, and the text tells us that he was troubled deeply, internally, mentally, physically, emotionally, stirred up over and over. He'd try to go to sleep and he'd wake up and he'd try to go to sleep and he would wake up. The text would indi indicate that to us. And so this, this dream was inescapable. It was graphic. It was confusing. It was perplexing. It was disturbing. And he was wondering, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for my kingdom? What does this mean for my power? What does this mean for my control. This was a God-given dream. We, we're going to find out next week. An accurate prophetic account of the rise and fall of nations that would be futuristic from Nebuchadnezzar looking forward. And it was deeply troubling to him. So Nebuchadnezzar has a spiritual problem. But the second thing we see beginning in verse 2 and going to verse number 9 is Nebuchadnezzar turns, his top, turns to his top spiritual advisors for a solution. Now, notice all of the words that speak to his control. 
Because I think the issue here is control. And I think the thing that we need to see is a comparison between a man who is in control and now he feels out of control and he wants to do everything that he can do to regain control and he is compared to a man who has no control, who is willing to take a risk and trust God's control and that would be Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Here's what I would suggest to you before I finish today. Most of us are like Nebuchadnezzar. We want to be in control. We want to control our lives. We want to control the people around us. We want to control outcomes. We want to be in control. We feel like we have to be in control. And I hope in the next few minutes that we have together that I'll be able to convince you of that this morning. So he commanded. He is in control. He brings in his top spiritual advisors and he gives us this this list of his top spiritual advisors when you have a dream and it wakes you up and it shakes you up and you realize you have a spiritual problem you bring in the best spiritual leaders you bring in the best denominational leaders and so he brought in the magicians the magicians had occult knowledge supernatural paranormal drawers of circles and lines he brought in the enchanters The astrologers, the enchanters would enchant, they would charm, they would put you under a spell, they would predict the future. He brought in the sorcerers, and the sorcerers practiced witchcraft and spell casting, and they controlled outcomes by gaining insights, and gaining insights by using specific words to invoke demonic powers. These were wizards. And then he brought in the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans lived in a specific geographical location in southern Babylon, but the whole population or this race of the Chaldeans were so immersed into these magical arts and this astrology that they were able to then become the PhDs of the underworld. These were the experts, the Chaldeans. And so he brings all of these advisors of darkness in to help him. The question we need to ask is why did Nebuchadnezzar need this conglomeration of spiritual advisors? He was out of control. And he needed to be in control. And he needed his spiritual advisors to tell him how he could regain control. And here's what I want you and I to understand this morning. Most of what we are taught religiously and spiritually and biblically is if we will do certain things a certain way, we can have control. And that's not what the Bible is teaching at all. If I'll give, if I'll attend, if I'll read then there are going to be some good outcomes that are going to come my way. We believe that. When's the last time you asked God for something and he didn't give it to you? What's your attitude toward God in that moment? God must not be hearing me. God must not care about me. God must not be faithful. Because God will not answer my prayer and let me be in control. Life for us is about control. And so Nebuchadnezzar was out of control. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to gain control. And so he brought in all of these people who couldn't help him at all. It's no different than us turning to superstition. How many of you are superstitious, right? I remember growing up, every time a black cat would cross in front of us, my dad would put an X on the windshield. I don't know why he did that. 
I just know I'll see a black cat cross in front of me, and I'm like, what's going to happen next? But I don't put an X on the windshield because I'm not, I'm not, I don't think, superstitious. We love sensationalism, spiritual sensationalism. We love ritual, do certain things certain ways to get certain outcomes. But even beyond that, we will turn to psychiatry, right? These are things that help us gain control when we feel like we're out of control. Or we will even turn to pharmacology. What is pharmacology? Pharmacology is, is, is where we go to maybe get some drugs, to help us feel like we're more in control. If you look at the word pharmacology and you look at the Greek form, it pharmaceutos, if you translate that out, it literally means sorceries. And so, so we, we are a culture that is inundated with, with drugs to help us feel like that we are in control. Whatever we turn to to gain or regain control. In this text... Nebuchadnezzar runs to these advisors and, 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 and invokes and includes every form of control tactics that he can. He manipulates, he threats, he, he violence. Many times we become violent, we become agitated, we become irritated, we become loud, we become upset, our eyes get big and our voices get loud. Why? Because we're out of control and we're trying to regain it. Right? Don't we? What do you do when you feel like you can't control your kids? <laughs> we, we start doing things to exert power. We see words like anger and fury, and he's about to commit a genocide and kill all of the advisors. And in his heart of hearts, he is saying, give me what I want. And that is the plea of every human heart. That is our hope when we obey. That is our hope when we pray. That is our hope when we get it right. That is our hope when we go to church. God, I'm being good. Give me what I want. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3. That irresistible offer in Genesis 3 was deliverance from subservience to and serfdom in God's humble kingdom. You can be freed from... The control of God, and you can be your own king, and you can be your own God, and you can be in charge, and you can be in complete control, and that is the lure of the serpent that could not be refused. And we have all in our fallenness taken the bait, and we long for that same power. We long for that same control. We long for that approval. We long for that comfort. We want to live in a world where we are in charge of everything and everyone around us. So we create gods. We create idols. We create spiritual advisors and spiritual experiences that honestly give us the control that we need and live for. Pornography is at epidemic levels, but it is a form of control. It is a form of control. Social media, we are drunk on social media. I mean, I mean, folks, some of you can't walk out your door unless you're posting it on social media. I'm glad I'm not on Facebook because can I be honest with you? If I read every time you posted something, <laughs> I think I'd get tired of you and I love you too much to be on Facebook. Okay? I just love you too much to do that. But we're just, we're just, it gives us a form of control because now we have approval. Now we have acceptance. Now we have significance. We 
Engage in fantasy. (laughs) What is fantasy? Fantasy is me becoming somebody that I could not normally become in life. I can enter into a football game and be a star quarterback. I can enter into a basketball game. And at 5'10", 205, I can dunk a basketball. I can enter into a baseball game and I can become Albert Pujols or Babe Ruth or anybody that I want to be. And I would be Willie Mays if I could be anybody, but you don't know who he is. He was the greatest. I can, in a fantasy world, pick up swords and I can start fighting and stabbing people and cutting people and winning every battle. I can walk in with military armaments and I can be a great soldier all while I'm sitting right there on my sofa in my living room. So it's just fun. No, it's control. It's control of who I want to be and who I think I am. We immerse in movies and become characters in the movies. We uh, in, engage in drugs. I talked with a man this week who was up in North Georgia. And he knows the, 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 the prosecutor who does his pro bono work for people who can't afford a lawyer. And he said, hey, what's the most frequent thing you see? It's heroin. Why heroin? Because so so many people in our culture have gotten opioids from the doctor and now they're weaning us off of opioids and people are literally turning to heroin. Literally turning to heroin. Why? Because it gives us some sense of control and it's epidemic. And we make all kinds of excuses. Whether, whether we're smoking pot or we're indulging in alcohol or we're trying to earn all the money that we can or have all the stuff that we can or create, create all the experiences that we can, all of these things give us some sense of power and control. And I think two things that are epidemic in our culture. One is uh, abortion. Abortion is an issue of control. I control my own body. I think the most upside down thing that could ever happen on the planet, and they take us off of Facebook if they want to, the most upside down thing that shows you how messed up a culture is, is when a mother who can conceive a child would want to destroy that child. And and listen, there is grace and there is mercy, but that is just the most upside down thing that I could ever imagine that is taking a life on the front end. But you know what? Suicide is a form of control. I will take control. I will be in control. I will control how I go out. It's all about control. Nebuchadnezzar had this spiritual problem. I'm out of control. And his spiritual solution was how can I regain control? Control. I will find or create a God that will give me control. But if you find or create a God, listen to me, that can give you control, listen to me. If you find or create a God that can give you control, that God is Satan. That God is Satan. The God of heaven is never going to lure you into the trap of saying, follow me, and you can be in complete control. The God of heaven is going to say, I want to save you from your sin, and I want to save you from yourself. And the only way that I can do that is if you give up, if you repent, if you turn loose, if you just rest. Stop trying to be in control. Let me be in control, and I will save you. Paradise for most of us is me being in control and fulfilling my desires my way. That's why we run from God to God and every God that we create will eventually fail us and we will blame that God 
for its failure and find another one to take its place. Control for most of us is life. And people who believe that will stop at nothing to get it. Some of you feel the need to control everything and everyone around you. Some of you kids, let me warn you this morning. You feel the need to control your parents. And that's a power that you can't handle. And I would beg you this morning to look at your parents and say, God put you in charge of me and I'm going to surrender to you. But in the home today, kids are in charge. Kids tell their parents what to do. Parents ask their kids if they would like to do something. Don't ask your kid if you want them to do something, if you expect them to do it. Don't approach them like they've got an option. Honey, would you like to brush your teeth? Honey, would you like to take the trash out? Honey, would you like to go to bed? Honey, would you like to eat your supper? Right? No. no. There's nothing wrong with somebody in the house being in charge and lovingly saying, this is what's happening here. But kids, let me just challenge you. If you find yourself wanting to be in control, know that that came from the fall. Parents, some of you are so overbearing on your kids that you don't even have a relationship with them. You're, you're so pressuring them to get them to perform and, and, and to look a certain way and to make you look good because you want to control them. Some of you men, some of you men need to love your wife and stop daggone it trying to control them and manipulate them, either negatively or positively, right? A, a woman's not a, 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 an ant. Well, a man told me one time, he said, I view a woman like a horse, and that's when you train a horse, you put an anvil around its neck and, and you weigh it down. That is not the Bible. That is not the Bible. Some of you ladies, you're going to make sure that you are in charge of the house and you've got your buttons and you've got your mechanisms and you've got your means and you've got your voice and you've got your tone and you've got your energy that can infect the whole house. You're going to be in charge or ain't nobody going to be happy. I would just challenge you to understand when those things are happening that you are seeking control. Listen to me, and I'm going to move to the next section. It is impossible to know God, to live for God, to serve God, to trust God, and at the same time be in complete control. If that's you, you don't want God. You want control. And if we somehow say we want God and yet still be in control, it is a God who will give us our own destiny. And your own destiny is not what you need. His destiny for you is what you need this morning. The third thing I want you to see in verses 10 and 11 is Nebuchadnezzar's top spiritual advisors make a startling confession. They make a startling confession. You can see it in verse 10. I've already read it. Two things they said. Number one, what you are demanding is humanly impossible, is unreasonable, and is unprecedented. He said no king at any point in time in history has ever asked anybody to tell him the dream and the interpretation. There is no person or idol or system or ritual or doctor or magician or drug or incantation that can fulfill your desire for control or power or comfort or approval. So he's asking for something impossible. And that's the bad news. There is nothing in this world that can fix your desire for control. 
That's what they're telling him. We, we can't fix this for you, king. But notice the second startling revelation, and I think this is sort of the heart of the text for me, and this is good news. Bad news is this. If you want to be in control and you're going to look for some spiritual means to justify your desire to be in control, there is no fix for that. We don't have a solution for you, king, is what they're saying. But watch this. Here's what they did say in verse 11. Uh, he's, he's, and here's what I would like to say to you. I'd like to introduce you to someone who can fix the situation of your desire for control. He makes it clear. The one who created you, the one who loves you, the one who longs for you to know him. What we, what we are demanding cannot be satisfied. Listen, our desire for control cannot be satisfied by people or Satan. It can only be satisfied. And this is what he was saying. No, nobody on this earth can figure this out. Only the gods can figure this out. But, the, but, but we really can't hear from the gods because the gods haven't come in human flesh. Therefore, we are not connected to them and we do not understand them. The good news I have for you this morning is that we know the end of the story. And while these magicians, these satanic magicians, did not have access to God, there is access to God through His Son. While they're saying no one in the flesh can understand what the gods do, and that is absolutely true, but the God in heaven sent his son to earth and robed him in human flesh, and his son walked around on this planet, and he walked up to people like me and you, and he looked us in the eye, and he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. You don't need to be in control. You need me, right? Right? There, there, is, there is no other mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy 2.5, except Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2.6, gave himself as a ransom for our sin. You don't need to be in control. You need to let him be in control. There is no other name under heaven, Acts 4.12, given among men whereby we must be saved. He came, walked on this planet, looked us in the eye, Pick people up who couldn't stand on their own two feet to show us that life is not about us being in control. It's about him being in control. And that is good news. There is a God who sent his son in the flesh so that we could know him and we could love him and we could be saved. He came and he lived the life that we could not live he died the death that we deserve to die, and he rose victorious over an enemy that we cannot defeat. And if you'll just stop trusting yourself, and if you'll stop trusting your hunger for control, and if you'll understand that that desire for control was what was birthed in you in Genesis 3 at the fall, and if you will repent of your sin and rest in him and turn to Christ today, he will be in control, and his control will be so much sweeter than your control. The fourth thing we see is this. Daniel is God's solution to Nebuchadnezzar's problem. We see it in verses 12 to 16. I love Daniel because, first of all, Daniel earned the right to be heard. We don't have the right to be heard just because we know what the truth is. The truth is, is given to us through Christ, right? He is the revelation of God, John 1, 1 to 5. 
So Christ has come. He is the Word, but the Word is embodied in human flesh. And the Word is revealed to you and to me. And that Word comes in the form of truth, but that Word comes in the form of how it is transmitted. We see Christ who would not, would not quench a smoking flax, Matthew 12, or break a broken reed. We see he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We see he's someone who, who loves and who cares and who is compassionate and who is gentle. Daniel manifests that. Daniel earned the right to be heard. We looked at it last week. He was respectful. He was gracious. He was humble. He was a unique an unusual spirit in a strange land. Someone has said, our influence over people will never be greater than our respect for people. Daniel respected everybody that he came in contact with, no matter where they came from. Whether, whether it was the head of the eunuchs that wanted to make them eat steak and, and French fries, or whether it was Ariok, who was this trained killer who went out to just chop all of the soothsayers up, Daniel treated them with respect. Daniel earned the right to be heard Secondly, Daniel interceded for those who were about to be slaughtered. They were literally about to be ripped from limb to limb. Look that up. It's pretty gruesome, and I don't want to go into the gruesome graphic details here on Family Worship Sunday. Essentially, you've got the king, the judge, looking at a group of people saying that you are worthless to me, and I will destroy you. But Daniel steps in and says, these people may be worthless, but I'm going to intercede for them. I'm telling you something. Ladies and gentlemen, listen. When you walk out the doors and you see people and you want to turn your nose up at them, or you think, why are they that way? Or why are they acting that way? Or why do they sound that way? Or why is that their lifestyle? Maybe we need to look at Daniel and take a lesson from him. Could it be that God brings such attention and weight to us from what's happening in our culture because he wants us to serve as intercessors for those who are so far from him and have believed the lie of Satan and they're trying to control their own lives? Could that be? Here is Daniel interceding for those who have no hope apart from what he does. And then thirdly, Daniel is the solution to Nebuchadnezzar's problem. Daniel constantly bore the aroma and the fragrance and the energy and the countenance and the posture of grace, humility, prudence, and discretion. When Daniel walked in the room, there was just a different aroma. Hey, can I ask you a question? What aroma do you give off when you walk in the room? Every time you hear Daniel described, in this text, prudence and discretion, what aroma do you give off when you walk in the room? Daniel, Daniel walks in, begins to talk to Arioch, and Arioch stops. Arioch should have just gone in and said, shoo, 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 cut him to pieces. Bound him up, took him and, and tied him between four trees and, and tied down so they could release him and then he could be ripped from limb to limb. But that is not what happened. And then finally, Daniel by faith threw himself upon the mercy. Listen, he threw himself upon the mercy of God and the lunacy of the king. Daniel threw himself upon the mercy of of God. In fact, if you read on in Daniel's prayer, Daniel's like, hey boys, he went to Shad, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He said, hey boys, pray for mercy. I'm going to need some mercy here. I done got myself in a mess. I done stepped out on faith and got myself in this huge mess. And I don't know how I'm going to get out of it, but I'm going to trust God. Would you pray for mercy? Daniel threw himself upon the mercy of God, but he was also at the mercy of a lunatic king who could say, bring that fool in here 
and let me slice him to shreds with everybody else. But that's what faith does. Faith will fling itself upon the mercy of God and the lunacy of the world around us if it gives us an opportunity to speak good news where there is no good news. If it will give us the opportunity to bring light into darkness. If it will give us the opportunity to bring life where all there is and all people know is death. And so... Daniel, by faith, I love if you look down to verse number 26 of chapter 2, and we'll get into it next week. I'm almost done. Go to verse 26. Notice what it says. And, and I love this about Daniel. Uh, the text says in, in verse 26, The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No. <laughs> no. Are you able? No. No, I'm not. I'm not going to lie to you. No wise men, enchanters, magicians, and astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king's asked. But there is a God in heaven. And just as much as Daniel needed him, and just as much as Nebuchadnezzar needed him, you and I need him just as much today. There is a God in heaven, and the God in heaven communicates and reveals and the supremacy of his communication is seen in his son so i ask you as i close where are you in this text are you nebuchadnezzar are you a spiritual advisor or are you daniel who are you in this text who are you in Locust Grove? Who are you in Jackson? Who are you at home? Who are you at school? Who are you at work? Are you this person that has to be in control, that wants power, that wants control? For many of us, God to us is a means of control. To be right with God is to be in control. The truth is it's the only way to be right with God is to give up control. The only way to be saved is to give up control and give up everything that you think gives you control, which means we must come in repentance. We must come in surrender. We must come in faith. Giving up, surrendering, repentance is internal. I give up trying, listen, I give up trying to control how I'm perceived. I give up image projection. I give up self-preservation. This is going to be tough. I give up manipulation. I give up violence. I give up violence. You say, I'm not a violent person. Many times our tone is violent. Many times our words are violent. I give up threats. I give up trying to control those around me. I give up fleshly temporary solutions to deep spiritual problems. I give up my idols that promise control and deliver Lies. That's what Daniel did, and that's what you and I must do if we're going to be able to begin to deal with this desire for control that we don't really think is all that bad. Because, number one, we think we know what's right, and number two, we think we deserve what we want. In fact, many times we say, you know what, I worked for it. Hey, you've earned it. Hey, you've earned it. Right? Control. Nebuchadnezzar was willing to fight, to manipulate, to kill, 
to engage in ritual and superstition. But Daniel said, I give up. I die daily. I've lost everything. And while he's in exile, he said only one thing remains, and that is God and my relationship with him. And that one thing that remains, God and my relationship with him, is the only thing that cannot be taken away. And when my relationship is right with God, it frees me to lay down everything, and it frees me to control nothing. And it is then that life is found. You want to know who was the most alive in this entire story? It was not the great king, and it was not his great spiritual advisors who had direct contact with Satan. It was a man in exile, a man in exile who'd lost everything, a man in exile who'd lost his identity, a man in exile who'd lost his family, a man in exile who'd lost all of his possessions, a man in exile who had nothing but a relationship with God. He was the freest guy in the story, and if you want to be free, and you want to know life. And you want to relate in ways that manifest the beauty that was intended in John chapter 17. Where we are a group of people that put the love of God on display by how we relate. Then you've got to give up control today and surrender your life to Jesus Christ. As King and Lord. Fully alive in exile. Can I tell you what? you long for today. You long to be fully alive. Every one of us longs to be fully alive. There's something about being in control that makes you feel alive. I talked about intensity last week. There's something about me being in this intense state that I can go to in a flash that makes me feel alive, but that is a lie. There's something about being in control. When things are out of control at the house, when your husband's out of control, when your wife's out of control, when your kids are out of control, when your world is out of control, when your employees are out of control, and you're like, I got to get control, <laughs> right? You feel alive then, but true life is found in surrender. True life is found in repentance. And I call on you this morning. I call on you this morning to stop trying to be in control and to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Every week we have communion and we have bread and we have juice and we have cups in the back and we even have gluten-free communion in the back. Um, let, let me encourage you, if you know Christ today, to come join us for this meal, this communion, this time of fellowship. It's a time to stop after a busy week, after 168 hours or 167 hours and 55 minutes and stop for just five minutes and go back over your week and, and take the time to think about when you just tried to control everything and what it feels like when you feel like you're out of control. When you don't want to trust God, when you think you're the only one that's trustworthy and you know how things should be, I want you to stop for a minute as you come to the table to sit down with Jesus Christ and remember his death and his burial and his resurrection. And I want you to come today, if you know the Lord, and just afresh and anew, repent and surrender and rest. Say, not my will, but thine be done. You are good. You are worthy. You created me. You know what I need. I surrender all.
Let's pray. Lord, um, we've got so many things in our lives that indicate our thirst for control. But I pray that you'd help us to look behind that to understand that where we started was with you being in complete control. And that while we're here, you ultimately are even in control to the point of giving a man like Nebuchadnezzar a dream. You are in control. And I pray this morning you'd wake us up to our battle with you. And I pray you'd wake us up to our battle with ourselves because, Lord, you know that we were created to be in fellowship with you. We were created for you to be in control of our lives. That is where beauty is found. That is where peace is found. That is where joy is found. And I pray that you would awaken us to the lies of the evil one. And I pray that you would awaken us to the realities of who you are and who you created us to be. And I pray that as we come to the table this morning, that we would repent of our sin. I pray that we would repent of our control. I pray that we would repent of our violence. I pray that we would repent of our manipulation. I pray that we would repent of our threats. I pray that we would re repent of wanting to control people around us, our parents or our children or our coworkers, or our husband or our wife. And I pray you would restore to us the joy of our salvation. As we cry out and say, have thine own way, Lord. We surrender to you. In Jesus' name I pray.